We're looking today at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 32. Paul has been converted, and he cannot keep this Jesus to himself. And today we read that he takes this Jesus and the message of Christianity to the epicenter of culture, Athens, the cultural and intellectual center of his day. We read about this journey and his mission in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Many of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by the raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but know not the word of our Lord. It stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. There's much talk today about what is the relationship between faith and culture. Much talk about the relationship about how public our faith should be. Most Christians, if the statistics are true, or even close to being true, say that our Christianity, our faith, is great as long as it remains in our private lives. Our faith is great as long as it just stays here in church or in our homes. But you see, Paul paints a totally different picture of the life of a Christian. Paul is converted. He's converted to Christianity, and everywhere he goes, he can't keep this Christianity to himself. 
And even we read today the boldness, maybe some would even say the audacity to bring Christ to Athens, to bring Christ to the epicenter of his time of culture and intellectual thought. Acts 17 gives the church and has given the church for 2,000 years a beautiful picture of the proper relationship between Christ and culture and what it means to bring our faith into the midst of a society filled with idols. A beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and culture and to bring Christ into the midst of a society filled with idols. So let's study it briefly together this morning. Christ and culture. The first thing that Paul gives us in this narrative in Acts chapter 17 through his life and through his witness is number one, an unwillingness to retreat. A prevailing ideology throughout redemptive history has been this. In order to maintain our purity, in order to maintain our distinctiveness, we as the people of God need to stay away from culture, retreat from culture, in order to prevent us as the people of God to adapt to culture or assimilate to it. This has been a prevailing ideology. In order to keep our distinctiveness, in order to keep our purity as the people of God, we need to retreat from culture instead of engaging in it. The problem is they've only heard one half of Paul's exhortation, be in the world but not of the world. Many Christians get the not of the world. They get that and they do that very well. They forget that God has called us to be in the world, to be sought and to be light. And the example we see from Paul is certainly not retreating from culture, but to dive into it headfirst. We're told here in Acts chapter 17, in verse 17 in particular, that he's at a place called the Agora. The English translation is marketplace. And no, that's not Target or Publix. The ancient marketplace was the center of society and culture. It's where politicians and business leaders, philosophers and religious leaders, the cultural elites of the day would gather, gather to debate ideas, to talk about society and worldview, to debate philosophies, both common philosophies and foreign philosophies. And here comes brazen Paul into the center of it all, into the marketplace, certainly not retreating from culture, but diving into it headfirst. Amidst all of the cultural elites, all of the leaders of his day, and the epicenter of culture and intellectual thought, the greatness of Athens, here comes Paul. You see, our culture today doesn't understand this because our culture today says religion is useful for our private lives but should have nothing to do with our public lives. That faith does not integrate with our politics or our government. It doesn't integrate with how we raise our families or how we see gender or sexuality. It has nothing to do with the public realm, only the private realm. Religion, after all, we're told, is for our inner peace and happiness. But Paul says, I beg to differ. He comes into the epicenter of culture and of the known world, and he brings Christ to the forefront. 
You see, many Christians today unfortunately say that we can't be overt, we can't be explicit about our Christianity, why? Because I'll lose influence and I'll lose the audience and the opportunity to share and witness about Jesus Christ. But that's not what we see here. Paul is on the biggest stage of his life and he's on the biggest stage in human history, Athens. And it's not him shying away from his faith that grants him the biggest audience of his day. It's him being bold. We're told in the passage that he preaches on Christ and the resurrection. There is nothing about Paul that shies away from the boldness of his faith. It wasn't him saying, we can't be overt, we can't be explicit about this Christian thing or we'll lose our audience. No, it was actually him being explicit about Jesus and the resurrection that gained him the biggest audience that he had ever seen and the most influential. And what did they do? We're told in the passage that they mocked him. They called him a babbler. The word translated is actually a seed picker. That is, Paul is like someone who just picks seeds off the ground and just regurgitates them. Just nonsense. Nothing but meaningless seeds that he just picks up off the ground and spits them back up to us. They mocked him. But even in the midst of mocking, even in the midst of ridiculing him, he never relents. He never backs down. There will be nothing. Paul has upon him an ambition and a mandate to go into the center of the world and the epicenter of culture and boldly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We in the 21st century church need to take our cues from the apostle Paul and have an unwillingness, a courage to be bold and to not retreat from culture but instead be in the world and not of the world. The second lesson we learn from the story of Paul entering into Athens is secondly, he has a bold proclamation of biblical truth. Paul, after he preaches Christ and him crucified in the marketplace, then gains a greater audience in a place called the Areopagus, This is where the philosophers of the day would bring in men like Paul and Paul would have his big chance, his moment, biggest moment of his career to present Jesus and to present his God. You see, what they would do in the Areopagus when men like Paul would come to town presenting their views about these new gods that the Athenians had never heard of, they would bring them into the Areopagus and they would stand before a council And just like Paul, many would have their opportunity. Present your case. And if we buy your case that this is a legitimate God that you're preaching, we will build him a shrine and an altar in the Pantheon down the road where he can be worshiped, where your God can be celebrated and your God can be honored. And what does Paul do? He does not back down. Instead of giving them what they want to hear, He presents them bold biblical truth. He presents to them the storyline of the Bible. Where does he start? He starts in verse 24 with the story of creation. But before he even does that, 
he attempts to find common ground with the Athenians. He says, as I was walking along the streets, I noticed an altar to an unknown God. He's finding common ground. He's observant of culture. And he says, this God that is unknown, I boldly proclaim to you. And in 24, he begins to tell the story of the Bible from creation to consummation. And in creation, he explains this God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man. What is Paul trying to do? He is throwing their ideology and their philosophy in their face. And what he is saying is, my God doesn't need a shrine and my God doesn't need an altar because my God cannot be contained in altars and shrines built by human beings. He's turning their worldview and their philosophy upside down. He is saying this unknown God that you think needs a small little altar down the road, that can't contain him because he is Lord. He is the sovereign over heaven and over earth. And then what does he do? After he explains who this God is, in verse 30, he says, but the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He is calling them to repentance. He is saying all of your vain attempts to worship this unknown God, all of your vain attempts to erect idols and to worship them is an offense to God. By calling them to repentance, he is calling them sinners. Paul is not the guy you want to hire to gain influence and win friends. He is calling the Athenians out and he's saying, you've got it all wrong. The God that you're trying to worship is the creator of heaven and earth. And the God that you are trying to worship and the idols you are trying to worship is an offense to God and you're sinners and you need to repent. But thanks be to God, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, one day the world will be judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, whom he has given us assurance to all by the raising of him from the dead. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. The God who created the heavens and the earth, who you have offended because of your sin, has not left us in our sin. And he calls them to repent and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. But nowhere in the sermon to the Athenians in the Areopagus does Paul once water down the message? Does he backpedal? Does he make apologies? No. We would do well in the 21st century church to look to Paul's example and to the sermon that he preaches and pray that God would raise up yet again young men and women who are unapologetic about biblical truth, unapologetic about God's word, that are able to say this is who God is, to call sin, sin, but to say that there is only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. He says your worldview is wrong, your ideology is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, but you can find salvation through Jesus Christ alone. We do not need Christians in the North American church to be soft or subtle when it comes to proclaiming biblical truth. We need men and women that are going out into the marketplace and public square not in order to make God relevant, 
or to make Christianity popular again, but to share with the world that this is who God is and that you're a sinner in need of God's grace and point people to the only hope in life and in death, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Next year is 2024. There's going to be a lot of people running for president. But I got a newsflash. God isn't one of them. God is not running for office. He's not running for God. He doesn't need us to make him more popular or more adaptable to the culture. He doesn't need us to make him more relevant so that the culture would accept him. He needs us to point people to the name that is above every name. He needs us to point people and this world to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The goal of our life is to live faithfully in the culture, in the world but not of the world, knowing God fully and living faithfully wherever God has planted us so that we might serve him and make him known without compromise, proclaiming biblical truth to a lost and dying world. What example does Paul give us concerning Christ and culture? An unwillingness to retreat, bold proclamation of biblical truth, and third and lastly, he gives us a heart motivated by the gospel. Back in verse 16, it says that while Paul was waiting in Athens, His spirit was provoked and he saw that the city was full of idols. The word saw there means to take a long, hard stare. He looked at the idols and he couldn't get his eyes away from them. He looked at the idols of his culture and he couldn't turn from his right or to his left. And he was so gripped by the idols of the Athenian culture that it says it caused his spirit to be provoked. The word provoked means an unusual combination of indignation and compassion. You say, pastor, that sounds like an oxymoron. How can you be full of both indignation and compassion? But that is the heart of the Christian. That is the heart of a blood-soaked, blood-bought child of God, that they're able to look at the idols of culture and not just respond with indignation, but respond with compassion. For if the Christian today in this culture filled with idols is only filled with indignation, we will fail to demonstrate the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But if the Christian today is filled only with compassion and not indignation, we will always compromise the truth and soften and water down the gospel. The Christian in the first century and the Christian in the 21st century must be filled with both compassion and indignation. That is what it means to have a spirit that is provoked. But it begged the question, where did Paul learn this? Where did he learn to look at the brokenness of his world and the idols of his culture and be provoked? He learned it from the cross. 
For it was on the cross of Jesus Christ that Jesus was both indignant towards sin but full of compassion towards the sinner. You see, what you and I need in our ministry and mission to this culture is we need a cross at the center of our life filled with compassion and indignation at the lostness and the brokenness of this world and the idolatry of our culture. At the end of the passage, it said that some mocked, but some believed. And maybe there's someone here today that is mocking at this message and mocking at the truth of Christianity. Always has been, always will be. But there might be someone here today that is ready to believe for the first time. And if you're here this morning and you are ready to believe and place your faith in Jesus Christ, hear the words of Paul that God created the heavens and the earth and that we have offended him with our sin. But the time of ignorance is over. And God has appointed a man, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one who lived for you and died for you and was raised from the dead for you so that you could have the assurance both now and forever. And I plead with you to no longer mock. I plead with you to not only continue to search, but I plead with you today, if you are convicted And being led by the Spirit, would you believe and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? This past summer, I had the opportunity to hear former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo share his testimony. And he told of a story of when he traveled to Egypt to deliver a message in Cairo with other world leaders And he wanted to start off his speech by saying, I'm Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and I'm an evangelical Christian. The speech writer said, you can't do that. They crossed it off and X'd it out. But what did Mike Pompeo do? Stood up on his biggest stage of his career, and he said, hello, I'm Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and I'm an evangelical Christian. At the end of the speech, the other world leaders came up to him and said, we don't believe what you believe, but because you're a man of conviction, we can work with you. Listen to me. The last thing this world needs right now is another superstar. The last thing this world needs right now is an individual that boasts and touts their education and their accomplishments. No, what this world needs now more than ever is to be pointed to the only one that is worthy of worship. What this world needs now more than ever in our brokenness is to be pointed to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one whose name is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Amen. If you're part of the next generation this morning, you're a student, getting ready to go off to college maybe this year, I plead with you, do not make your life about you. 
That is an empty life. But would you make your life about knowing God and making him known, his glory, his fame, his worth, because the world is desperate to know the unknown God, desperate for young men and women that don't retreat from culture, but instead go head first and boldly proclaim biblical truth and not your place, not your glory, not your fame, but the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our world is longing to find someone who is worthy to worship. So may we, Coleridge Presbyterian Church, point clearly and courageously and relentlessly to the only one who is worthy, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, I pray that in a world that is broken and a culture filled with idols, that we would be the people of God that would be provoked, provoked in spirit, full of indignation that this world is broken and lost and dying, but filled with compassion that the world is like sheep without a shepherd, needing to be pointed to the only one that can bring hope and healing and life. And Lord, in a space like this this morning, and people watching at home, granted there will be people that don't know Jesus, and I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that if you are here this morning, and you have been pursuing your fame and your glory, that you thought that your sin would forever separate you from God and that there was no hope for you, that you were beyond the grace of God, I pray that you would hear the words of Paul, that the times of ignorance are over that God is calling people everywhere to repent and you today can be a person that repents of your sin and looks to Jesus Christ for salvation. Repent and believe and be saved. Confess that you're a sinner in need of grace. Confess that Jesus is the only way to heaven and be accepted and embraced and have the assurance that you will forever live with God and that you can experience life to the full both now and forever. And for us that know Jesus, knows that those that belong to the family of God, would you empower us, fuel us by your gospel and your spirit to go be light and salt, to be that city in the midst of the city of man that points to the glory of God and the salvation of Jesus for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray this prayer, amen.